Well, if you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are now near the very end of the book of Daniel in our series here. We got two more Sundays left in Daniel. Hope you're ready for some apocalyptic visions and pictures of war and the end of all things. Um, you know, the, Daniel's an interesting book in that sense. You know, I think I've always underappreciated those visions. You know, when you grow up, especially if you grew up Christian and you read the book of Daniel, you hear the stories, it's just always the narratives you focus on, and that's great, and they're good narratives. But you don't really understand, like, how did Daniel have this amount of faith, right? Like, how did he, how was he enabled and strengthened to stand up to the kings, to submit to them, but also to resist? Well, you see these things come through through the visions, right? This is what he saw, this is the hope that he had, and it's important for us as well. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Daniel chapter 10. We are going to be working through a lot of uh, text today. We're going to go through uh, well, 10, 11, and part of 12. We're going to read chapter 10. We're going to summarize chapter 11. We're going to read a few verses out of chapter 12. So we got a lot to cover. So open it up to Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The verses will be up on the screen as well. So this is how this begins, this narrative, this part, this vision. Verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Now, just quick context, the third year of Cyrus. So we've reached the very end of the exile. The Jews are home. Like, Israel has gone home. They're back in Jerusalem. Everything that Daniel has been praying for has happened. They've been restored. They're going back. And they're starting to rebuild things. And if you know anything about this history for Israel, they go home and they start strong. Let's do this. And you have Ezra and Nehemiah, and they build walls, and they rebuild the temple, and here we go. But then it's followed by just extreme disappointment because they get back home, and they have no king. The temple they built was nothing in comparison to the great temple of Solomon. Their city walls are nothing in comparison to what they had. And when they get there, there's other people living there. It will never really be their home again. They have to share it with others, the Samaritans, various other people groups, the Greeks and the Persians. It's not theirs. And so quickly Israel will go into decline and apathy and stop trying and stop caring. And this is what Daniel is grieving. They've gone home, but it doesn't seem right. Like God has fulfilled that 70 years. He brought them back from exile. But God, there must be something more. This can't be the fulfillment of everything. To go back home, to not really have a home, to not really be experiencing what you promised us. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Apas around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, 
and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his voice, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. It's this terrifying vision, beautiful vision, but just terrifying of this man, of this beautiful angel. Most would argue probably is the angel Gabriel, but he sees this incredible vision and he just falls to his face. Verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So this angel, probably Gabriel, right, comes to him, touches him, strengthens him, fear not, And he was meaning to come to him for a while, but there has been some great spiritual battle that has delayed him. The archangel Michael has intervened and was able to, enabled Gabriel to come to him, and he finally comes to him, and he's going to explain to him what is going to happen to his people in the latter days. Verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. What an amazing picture. He sees this vision. Now another one has appeared. This isn't Gabriel any longer. And Daniel refers to him as his Lord, and he has no strength. How can I speak to you? How can I even look upon you? Verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, or against these except Michael your prince." So this one, this man, or this figure who has the likeness, the image of man, who looks like a man, comes to Daniel, strengthens him, 
wants him to have courage, right, and is going to tell him what is to come. And that's what chapter 11 is. And if we, we go into chapter 11, I'll try to summarize it, because chapter 11 is one of the most technical books where you have a lot of these very intricate prophecies that get fulfilled. And really how chapter 11 works, and you're welcome to read through it, the first 15 verses of, of, of chapter 11 is the first phase of a great war. So here this man tells him, this one in the likeness of a man tells Daniel what is to come. And he begins by telling him of this war that will come. After this, three more kings of Persia will rule. Then a truly mighty king will rise up and he will do whatever he wants. Now historically, this is Alexander the Great. Right, so the vision that he's been given is of Alexander the Great rising to power and doing whatever he wants, ruling taking over, and this is what will happen. I mean, Alexander will take over the entire world. And then they tell Daniel, right, but this king will die and his kingdom will be divided up into four parts, which is exactly what will happen after Alexander suddenly dies. His kingdom gets divided between four of his generals and he has four divided kingdoms. And then there will be a war between the north and the south, and it will be a continual back and forth struggle is the vision that Daniel has between the north and the south. And that's what will happen between Ptolemy in Egypt and Seleucid in the north. These names are all kind of, if you're into history, this is exciting. If you're not into history, there's just a big war between the north and the south, and they will continually be fighting back and forth, back and forth, Egypt and what will be Persia, and it'll be this back and forth fighting a continual struggle that will accomplish absolutely nothing. Then in verses 15 through 35, Daniel gets the second phase. After 150 years of the reign of Seleucid kings, so there will be these kings for 150 years that will rule this area of Persia, including Jerusalem and Israel. After 150 years, there will be one king in particular who will rise, who will be especially bad. And historically, this is Antiochus IV. This Antiochus figure, this king is going to rise who will take the throne for himself. He will grow in power and he will resume all the old wars. He will invade Egypt, but he will be beaten back by the Romans at this point. And so he will have to retreat. While he's waging war in Egypt, this historically is when the Jews rebel. If you know anything about like the Maccabean revolt and Hanukkah and all these types of things, this is this period. And it will go because this, that, re, that rebellion against Antiochus, Antiochus will ride into Jerusalem and he will squash it. And he will desecrate the temple. He will slaughter a pig on the Holy of Holies. I mean, it will be the worst thing imaginable. And that's when the Maccabees rise up against him and they relight the menorah and they hold out for those several days against the Romans before they come in and, and slaughter them. But this picture of continual warfare and then the rise of Antiochus who will do unspeakable things to God's holy city. But then verses 36 through 45, things are going to get even worse is what Daniel finds out. That many of these verses, it seems like he's speaking of Antiochus, but he also seems like he's speaking of someone who will be like Antiochus and the passage as a whole seems to be speaking of a king who will be a greater and larger and more ultimate figure than him. So kind of fulfilled by Antiochus, but not fulfilled by Antiochus. Like, yes, Antiochus is going to be this terrible king who's going to rule over you and is going to do unspeakable harm to you. 
But there will be another like him who will do even worse to you. And this coming ruler will do as he pleases. He will attack the mightiest fortress and make followers, and he will rule over many. And what you have here is what the author is intending us to do is to see Antiochus as a model by which we are to compare these coming kings and this ultimate final king who will come and who will rule over Israel and do unspeakable things. So all of chapter 11, that vision that Daniel has, the prophecy given to him is that history will not come to a conclusion until this horrible king appears. There will be another Antiochus. There will be one who will come and do unspeakable things. But then there will be another one. Then everything will end. And then in verse 11, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, the narrative wraps up. So after this one king rises, this horrible king, this future king, at that time shall arise Michael. Oh, I think I got the wrong verse up, sorry. Here we go. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So this final picture is that when this new and true Antiochus, this once this true horrible ruler rises up, Michael will come, the archangel. And there will be a time of trouble unlike any that God's people have ever seen. But the people of God will be delivered. And those who have died will rise. Some to life and some to shame. Some to become like the brightness of the stars. So this picture that he gives him, right, is that there is an end. There's a lot that's going to happen in between this, right? He says there's going to be running to and fro. There's much to know. Knowledge is going to increase. This is, I'm giving you a picture, Daniel, of where this is ultimately going to end, of what is to come. And in essence, Daniel gives us this vision so that we will know what is to come. So what's the point of all of this, right? This apocalyptic kind of visions. And for those of you who sat through Revelation and with George, right? This is, this is timely. You understand how the apocalypse gives us hope. You know, and for Daniel, right? He's trying to put, it puts life into perspective. It puts that weeping and mourning that Daniel is going through into perspective. It puts the struggle of Israel into perspective, right? It puts everything into perspective, 
Daniel and Israel's troubles, right? It's like, this is nothing in comparison. If you think what you've experienced at the hands of Babylon and of Persia and what you're experiencing in Jerusalem now at the hands of the Samaritans and the Greeks and the Romans, if you think this is bad, there is worse that is coming. And for us as readers of the text now, right, I mean, if this is our future, if this is truly speaking of the end of all things, and like we went through the book of Revelation, boy, does it put things into perspective, right? Is it possible that things could get worse? And in fact, you know, we don't have to look very far for perspective, right? I mean, that's one of the things that American Christians have a real tendency to do is to lose perspective, right? to look kind of insular and to see what we have and to look at the persecutions or the suffering that the American church is going under and kind of, oh, woe is us. Well, we don't need Daniel 11 to kind of wake us up. I mean, we can just look at the news or hear of other Christians or the church around the world and say, oh, let's get some perspective when, it, when we're talking about suffering. Oof, yeah, what president could possibly... <laughs> be that bad in comparison to what is going around in the world, or let alone what is to come, the ruler who will rule over us one day, who will do unspeakable things. Okay, our current regime doesn't look bad at all, or past ones or other ones. In a lot of ways, these prophetic visions, these apocalyptic visions, and I think that's really what the intention of it is here for Daniel and for Israel is really to kind of put them to shame a bit. It's to kind of wake us up. It's, right, this, the, this fantastical imagery, right? You have to be able to kind of see things in a new light. And it helps to shame us for our grumbling, right? Where do we grumble about the day and age that we live, right? It's easy to do it. It's easy to grumble about how bad things are today compared to what it was like or hope for what better is to come or how hard it is to be a Christian and, oh, Who are we to grumble and complain about that, about being a Christian, about being God's people, when you know what has happened and you know what will happen? Oh, we have it so good. It shames us, but then it also teaches. And so really when you look at the book of Daniel, we talked about this at the very beginning, we've talked about it all the way through. I mean, Daniel is a writing. It's in the writings, meaning like it's intended to give wisdom. It's intended for us to give us a model, a picture of how to live. I mean, this is what we all should be living like. This is our heart's desire is to be able to live like Daniel in exile, to live like those, his friends, to to be faithful, to be submissive, but also to be resistant and subversive, to to live that life that, that he has lived. And really these visions inspire us to do it. It inspires Daniel to live this way, right? It gives us hope to live this way. And if I know these things about the future, right, it pushes me. And I think what we see in the book of Daniel, and we certainly see it in these chapters, and I think we see it throughout the entire book, I think we see these four big ideas that we're being really pushed to. Like, what does it look like to live this life of a faithful rebellion, right, that Daniel actually lives, If we look at Daniel's life, and we've looked at his life in a lot of different ways, and then here in this vision as well, we see kind of a summation of what that faithful life is to look like. Then, 
in exile in Babylon, but then also under new kings, under new regimes, when worse and worse happens, we still continue to get the model and the picture given to us of what it is to look, to actually live faithfully in this world. I think we have these four ideas. The first being belief, right? Believing. And this seems to be very central throughout the entire book of Daniel that you, there is faith necessary, faith in God's sovereign power, right? It seems to be the foundation of everything and the basis of our hope and all of our activity for God. There's a quote here from chapter 11. It is those, and, first, and chapter 12, it is those who know their God, right, who will stand on that day. It'll, it'll be those who know their God, History is not just a never-ending struggle between good and evil. Right? That's the narrative that's easy to believe. That history is just always wars. It's always back and forth, good versus evil, always going in cycles. There'll be good, and then there'll be evil, and there'll be a war, and there'll be another war, and then there'll be a good king, and there'll be a bad king, and it just never ends. That's not the truth. I don't believe that. I believe in a God who is good. I believe in a God who will win. I believe that everything is leading up to a triumphant conclusion where goodness wins. Evil will not have its day. Good will ultimately triumph. All of history is under the control of God. That's foundational. That's all the way through Daniel. That's clearly what Daniel believes, that all of human history is under God, that God is working, his hand is working in all things, in every era, in every people group, in all governments, no matter how horrible they may seem, God is ultimately still working and still in control. Every king and every ruler, no matter how good they look or how bad they look, God is working. And if we believe this, Right, we see the fruit of that belief. If I actually believe that God is working, God is actually in control, even when there are evil rulers and empires, even when the governments and all these things seem out of my control, if that's really true, if I believe that, it leads me into submission. Right? Like I think this is why Daniel can submit so freely to Nebuchadnezzar and to Belshazzar, who's even so much worse, and to Darius and to Cyrus. This is why he can do this. How could you, right? Because that's the question. As you read through Daniel, it's like, how can you trust these guys? How can you work for them? How can you do this job, Daniel, right? Working for a government that's oppressing your people, that's enslaving them and destroying your homeland because he believes that God is truly in control, that God is the true king and that one day he's gonna restore them and all things will be made new. If I believe that, I can submit. I can work for. I don't have to work against. I can submit to my rulers like Daniel and ultimately like Jesus, right? Jesus does the same thing. He believes so strongly in God and in the will of the Father, right, that he submits himself to the rulers of his age as well. The true king of this world submits himself to death at the hands of Pilate. Why does he have to do that? Because he knows the ending of the story. He knows that this momentary suffering is going to end in ultimate glory. That's what, and Daniel knows that too. The other picture that we see within the book of Daniel too is this resistance. 
Right? So my belief le- lends me and leads me to submit, right? but it also calls me to resist, right? Because we're called to resist very faithfully, even to the point of death. And the vision really shows this, how things are going to get worse and worse and worse, but that there will be many. And in chapter 11, it talked about how there will be many in the church who will be seduced by power, the allure of power and security and control, right? I mean, George went through this with Revelation, right? But this, that desire to have power, so seductive. And there will be many that will, go, that will be seduced and led astray into that. And this has always been the history of the church and the struggle of the church, from going from a persecuted minority to then getting in bed with power to then abusing that power and losing its faithfulness and no longer its voice or its ability to resist or speak against the evil of its age or what is going on, the church loses its voice very, very quickly. It loses the prophetic voice once it's given itself to the power. And some are going to be called to live these faithful lives of resistance their entire life like Daniel. But not everybody. (laughs) Not everyone in Israel is Daniel. Not everybody works for the king. Some will. Some are going to be called into work like that. Some of you have work like this, where you have to work for and with evil kings and governments and bosses and places that really call you to resist every day. And your whole life is a life of resistance. Many of us are called to that life. Others of us don't. Others of us have different lives. But there's still an element of resistance that's in there of using power and privilege for others. And that's what they do. Daniel does that. He uses his power and his privilege for others. Think of how many lives he saved, evil lives he saved. He's always saving those terrible, terrible coworkers of his. You know, the, he gets everybody off the hook again and again. You know, he saves the nation when he doesn't. He shouldn't. He should protect the Jews. He should protect his people. But he's always serving the Babylonians, saving the Persians, loving those others, using his position of privilege, not for his own tribe, but for everybody. The same way that Christ right, uses his privilege, his power, to save those who would kill him. And others in chapter 11 really kind of talks about martyrdom. Some will be called to die. Some will suffer and die for the sake of Christ. Foolishness in the eyes of the world. And again, it goes back to the view of history. If history is just an assortment of random circumstances, right, coming from nowhere, going nowhere, because that's the cultural narrative, right? Life is just random. There's pain and there's suffering in it. Then this picture of faithful suffering has no possible meaning, right? Just willful suffering in this life is a wasted life. That's the narrative. Why would I suffer if I didn't have to? Why would I willfully not, why why would I ever choose a life that would not end in my glory? Why would I do these things? If this life is random, that is a huge waste. But if history is actually following God's predetermined course to a final end, well then every action is filled with meaning. Every circumstance, every sacrifice made is worthwhile because of the hope of the resurrection. All things are going to be made new. Everything is going to be dealt with. Nothing is going to be lost. 
many will rise to everlasting light and glory. That's what Daniel was told. Whatever sacrifice we make in this life, and some of us are going to be called to make great sacrifices. Many of us have made great sacrifices for the sake of Christ, and many of us haven't, or in comparison to the sacrifices of others. But whatever those sacrifices are, small or great, it's worth it. If this life is it, then just as Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians, right, we are the most to be pitied because we live a life of suffering. Who would willingly live a life of suffering unless there was something waiting for us? But if there's a resurrection, right, then the trials are nothing compared with the glory that awaits us. Nothing. When I was younger, I was really influenced by, and I think probably a lot of, if you grew up evangelical, maybe you were influenced by those stories of like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the, you know, and I went to Wheaton College where they went. So I mean, there's all those like things of like, oh, wow. But I remember that quote Jim Elliott gives talking about explaining why they were going to go and work in South America. You know, and he gives this quote of like, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. <laughs> Because it's foolishness in the eyes of the world. Why would you give up? Because they left college. They, they quit school, gave up promising lives and careers to give their life at the hands of this Indian tribe who killed them. You're like, why would you do that? That's foolishness. Like, it's, you're no fool to give up what you could never keep anyway. Right? We can't keep our life. My life is nothing. I, can't, I don't own my life. To gain what I cannot lose, right? That's not a fool. So there's this resistance that we're called to. And then the third piece is this teaching that happens. And you see this consistently through the book as well. Those who are wise will instruct many. So if I believe this about God and if I know this about history, because that's what the apocalyptic visions give us, right? That's what Revelation helps us with. This is what the end of Daniel helps us with. It gives us perspective. It tells us the truth about the world. If I know this, that God is actually in control and that one day there will be a renewal and resurrection of all things, right? that the things of this world are fleeting and that the truly imperishable is still to come, I have to teach that. I have to teach this to my children. I have to teach this to others. I have to speak of this. Right? It's that constant need for instruction, the need for community the endless opportunity to be a witness to the truth of this reality, speaking wisdom instead of foolishness. Right? This is the writings. There's wisdom and there's foolishness. A fool, right, puts all of their hope in this life and in this world. The wise do not. Right? Do we speak as people who are wise, who really trust and believe God, the believe he's in control of all things, and that all things are coming to this ending and all things will be made new. If we do, then we start to teach. Daniel taught, right? Think of all the instruction he continually gives to the kings. He's always speaking the truth to them in such powerful ways. This is what we're confronted with. Do we speak the truth? Jesus, his entire life, is speaking the truth, teaching everyone, not just his followers, but he will speak the truth continually to anyone and everyone he's confronted with. I think that final picture that we get of this life of faithfulness of Daniel and that we're supposed to have in the exile is this element of prayer, right? Because the whole conflict of chapter 11 is framed 
by these spiritual battles of Michael and Gabriel. Right? He wants you to see that. That there was a battle going on before they got to Daniel and there will be battles after Daniel. That there will always be these spiritual battles. It seems to be this, the necessity then that we see that there is a spiritual reality that's all around us. A spiritual battle that's raging and that's going on that we can't see, that we can't comprehend, that we don't know anything about. And that prayer is our part in that battle. Prayer is the part that the saints are to play. It's this revolutionary activity, right? You want to be a revolutionary in this world, right? In our age, you want to wage war against the powers. Pray. Right? There's very few as subversive things that we can do as to not need the praise and approval of men and then to pray, because in prayer, right, it's this activity by which weak, mortal creatures take our stand in a great cosmic battle and do our part to move heaven and earth towards God's final victory. I mean, wow, how great is that, right? Playing a very small role in this huge battle, in this huge thing. It's amazing. My kids and I this week, we watched the Hobbits movies like bit by bit all week, you know, and it's, those are such great narratives because it's just this huge, right? You have no idea, right? Every character has no idea of the larger scale of the battle that's going on, that's being waged, but everyone has a part to play and they don't even realize how, necessi how necessary they are in that battle. Small, seemingly insignificant things. This is prayer, the prayers of the saints, Joining in the spiritual battle, right? Think of Paul at the end of Ephesians, right? Gird yourself, clothe yourself for this battle and pray. This is what we do. But we would only do this if we truly believed, right, in this battle that's being waged and that it was going to win, <laughs> right? That our side was going to win the battle. We pray. We pray like Daniel prayed. We pray like Jesus prayed for the kingdom of God to come to earth, for all things to be made right and to be made new, we would pray. Ultimately, right, ultimately our hope is that all things are coming to an end. <laughs> that seems to be what's being told to Daniel. Tyrants are going to rise and they are going to fall. Empires are going to come and empires are going to go. But the kingdom of God will endure forever. And with it, those whom God has redeemed. That our present circumstances will pass away, whether they are good or whether they are bad. Right? This is a healthy perspective. This is the wisdom that we need to hear. Right? Because we can get so insulated that we feel like everything is great. I never want this to end. Well, it's going to. Or things are so bad, I can't imagine, right, that this will ever get better. That will end. Everything is going to come an, to an end. But our endurance and our hope in this, our hope in the midst of it, and here's the really important word for us, right, is that our hope in the midst of all that trial and end is not because of our faithfulness. Right? Because that's one way that we could read the book of Daniel. And the one way we could read these prophetic visions. Right? You hear this. Okay, things are going to get worse. Then God's going to return. Everything's going to be made good. 
all right, I'm going to be faithful then. I'm going to work really, really hard to make sure that I get a reward, right? My hope is going to be based on how hard I prayed, how hard I submitted to my authorities, how hard I resisted, how much I suffered. It's easy to put your hope in that. Rather, right, the text is clear. All of Scripture is clear. Daniel is clear. There is no power in the suffering of the saints, (laughs) There is no magic intrinsic power in the shedding of our blood that if I suffer enough, God will reward me for it. That's not how Christianity works. That's not the hope. We enter into the new heaven and new earth by the blood of Jesus, not by the blood of martyrs. It wasn't the shedding of the blood of the saints that secured for them their entrance into the kingdom. That's not what the text is telling us. It's because Christ suffered and died and rose again that history has meaning, not because I will suffer and I will rise that history has meaning. Right, it's easy to make all of human history about me. In my suffering, my resurrection, I have hope. No, no, no. History has meaning because the maker of heaven and earth suffered and rose. Our hope is that Christ suffered on my behalf turning suffering into glory. So now I suffer and I get glory from it, but it's not, my hope is not in my ability to suffer rightly. My hope is in Christ, that he suffered for me. It's in Christ's suffering. It's in Christ's faithfulness. He's the guarantee that secures us the resurrection, right? Not me, because I, I ultimately will fail. I will try. I will do these. I, right? And we all go through those ups and these downs where we have tremendous times of belief and faith. But then I doubt. And I get seduced by power and comfort and I lose sight of my hope. Right? And I, I, at times I'm very resistant and I will fight against the evil of this world and the corruption. Other times I'm just blind to it. And I don't even realize how corrupt I am and how I'm part of the problem. And I need to be woken up. I mean, my hope can't be in me. I go through waves of where I'm really diligent in prayer and then I'm really undiligent in prayer, where I teach well, when I teach my children, when I don't. I mean, it's like my hope can't be in me when it comes to the resurrection, that I have a good enough record, that I will be raised up and made shining like the sun. I have no hope in that. Our hope is that Christ was faithful on our behalf. He was more faithful than Daniel. He suffered more than anyone could ever suffer, and he rose to secure our eternal destinies. So how do we persevere? How do we live in this age? How do we believe and resist and teach and pray? We have to look to Christ, right? We have to have that vision before us, just like Daniel did. He saw Christ. He had that vision. He was touched by Jesus, if that's Jesus, Jesus in the text, right? The one who looks like a man who touches him and speaks to him. We have to see Jesus. If I have him before me, the trials and the difficulties of the present, right, just fade. It helps us. It helps, gives us perspective. Christ and the cross and the resurrection and that hope of him coming again in glory, right? It helps us in the midst of trial and it helps us in the midst of blessings to not confuse them. Whatever trial you're going through is nothing, in comparison to the trials that Jesus went through and in comparison to the trials that the saints will go through. Your trials are nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits you 
and the trials that Jesus went through on your behalf. And then whatever blessings you're in, what are you talking about? These are insignificant. You think your house is great. You think your life is great. This job is great. Oh, these are fleeting. This is nothing. Your eternal home is waiting for you. Eternal glory is waiting. Such better things. Stop being seduced. Stop loving this life so much. Don't you see what is waiting for you? And it strengthens us for battle, right? Because in so many ways, we need to be strengthened for the battle that's to come. In what ways do you need to be strengthened, right? Do we need to be strengthened? Because that's really the emphasis for Daniel. That's what Revelation is for the church as well, right? War is coming. We're in the midst of war. Don't be lulled into thinking that we live in a time of peace. We don't. We live in a time of war. Get ready for the battle. Is it, do you struggle with faith and belief? Are you unsure about this Jesus, <laughs> that his resurrection is real, that he really is coming back? Well, you should figure this out, right? Do you struggle with resisting the evil of this world, right? Are you too inoculated into this world? Do you not recognize sin? Do you not speak against sin? Do you not see the struggle, the war that you're waging every day at work and in your neighborhood and in this culture? Right? Do you need to be woken up? Do you need some instruction? Do you need some teaching on this? Right? Do you teach others or are you just receiving the word continually? Right? I mean, this is the New Testament continually talks about this, like of the need, oh, you should be teachers by now. Oh, you need to be speaking the truth. You know, are you afraid to speak the truth? Are you afraid to speak of Jesus and his kingdom in your world and to your neighbors and to your families? And or do you struggle with prayer? Turn to Christ and be strengthened by him the same way Daniel was. Because right in the face of this, in the face of the end of the earth, the end of all things, you should be a little weakened in the knees and scared <laughs> like Daniel was. That's okay. So where are you going to find your strength when you think about what lies ahead? It can't be in you. It's got to be in Christ. So look to Christ and be strengthened. Pray, believe, and resist. Look to Christ and how he has secured our eventual victory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that you are in control of all things. Lord, we thank you that you are actually at work in this world and in our lives, in our suffering and in our blessings. Lord, we just can't even begin to thank you for the eventual victory that awaits us and that awaits you and the glory and the praise that you will receive and you are so deserving of. Lord, we are just desperate for that day when all evil and sin will be broken and all things will be restored and made new. And Lord, we just thank you and praise you that you have secured our destinies and our fate is secure in you and that we know the ending of our story that we know that whatever trial and suffering we go through is nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits us because of you. 
Lord, we know that you have gone before us to prepare a place for us. Who are we that you should be so mindful of us, that you should remember us, that you should come back for us, that you would claim us as your bride? Lord, strengthen us for battle. Lord, give us perspective. Fill us with the knowledge of your will and of your love so that we would be strengthened to stand firm together with one mind and one spirit, that we would be able to walk in the work that you have laid out for us, Lord, that we would not be deceived by this world, by the foolishness of our age, Lord, but that we would be wise and that we would see you as our strength and as our wisdom. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to you Wake us up and help us, Lord. Strengthen us and encourage us. Our knees are weak and we easily give up in the face of hardship and in the face of evil. The Lord, strengthen us to stand. In your name we pray. Amen.